Okay, Barbara, let's set the scene. Okay, Leland, imagine it. It was a magical time when jeans were a little more mom, Justin Timberlake's hair looked a lot more like ramen noodles, and the queen of Tejano music reigned supreme over airways and on TV screens with the little ditty known as Bitty Bitty Bum Bum. Oh my god, I love Selena. She was literally the Tejano queen of pop and the queen of Coca-Cola commercials. As a Mexican-American, she bridged the gap to mainstream audiences and inspired the J-Lo's, the Eva Longoria's, and of course the other Selena's of the world. She rocked the advertising world. And that's exactly the point. You know, the world had never seen someone quite like Selena until then. Or had they? That's the purpose of today's podcast, to explore the past, present, and future of Hispanic advertising. Hey there, I'm Leland. And I'm Barbara. And together we're Ad Culture. A podcast where we explore how diverse the advertising community really is, and maybe even learn something along the way. With the help of experts. Uh, yes, definitely with the help of experts. We'll be bringing in industry leaders to help us educate, inspire, and hopefully entertain you. All right, Leland, we finally made it finally thank goodness (laughs) seriously guys it has felt like such a long time coming because we've been doing a ton of research and talking to a ton of people so that means we are so incredibly excited to share the first part of our multi-part series on hispanic advertising with you you know our first guest she's pretty special not just because she's obviously our first guest but because (laughs) she embodies today's topic the history of hispanic advertising Exactly. And we were lucky enough to find someone who is an actual historian. Mm -hmm. And she's a historian who has spent the past several years putting together the story of Hispanic advertising. And that's not something that a lot of people have been talking about before now. Mm -hmm. So without further ado, here's our first guest, Kathleen. I'm Kathleen Franz. I'm curator of business history at the National Museum of American History, which is one of the Smithsonian's museums in Washington, D.C., and I work on a range of business history subjects, um, including advertising, Uh, but advertising is really my passion. It's what I care most about. So a fun fact to know about Kathleen is that this interest in advertising actually started out pretty early on, all the way in college, actually. I've been studying advertising since graduate school. Um, So I took a PhD in American Civilization at Brown and worked with an advertising historian there, Susan Smullian, who's written about radio, the early days of radio advertising. That's when I got really interested in the topic. Um, And then, you know, I sort of followed it throughout my career, but I recently switched jobs from being a university professor um, to taking this curatorial position. And I did that specifically so that I could help build the advertising collections within the Smithsonian. And that's exactly what she did. The Smithsonian has one of the two largest collections of advertising history in the nation. And part of a curator's job is to evaluate these collections to see where they can expand. Now, we want to take a second to let you know why people like Kathleen are so important. Writers, researchers, authors, and even other historians are constantly accessing the collections behind these exhibits to use in their work. That's what makes the contents of the collections so important. 
They end up shaping research, writing, and conversation on all kinds of topics. Curators look at these collections multiple times a year, trying to determine what to collect next. When Kathleen started, she did just that and discovered that something major was missing. The museum started collecting advertising in the 1970s and has all sorts of archival and material collections. And when I surveyed those um, about two or three years ago, I didn't see very much from Hispanic agencies. There were some things targeted at um, Latino markets, but not anything from that was really produced um, by Hispanic agencies. And so I thought that was an incredible hole in the collections and one that needed to be filled. I thought that, you know, it would really change the way the history of advertising would be written by historians if I could fill that gap um, and include more Hispanic produced materials from agencies that weren't represented. But who do you go to for something like that? Kathleen needed a partner and found an enthusiastic one in AHA, the main trade association for Hispanic advertisers and marketers based out of the D.C. metro area. Their executive director, um, Horacio Gabalon, really helped me reach the agencies and think about a timeline of Hispanic advertising in the U.S. There are only a couple books out there that take on the topic, and, and I think that's mostly because there aren't big archives, um, so it's hard to write about it. You have to be an anthropologist like Arlene Davila. Arlene is a Puerto Rican author who has contributed greatly to the field of Latino studies. Somebody who's going to go out and talk to folks. Um, so it tends to be um, a limited range of literature that I could draw on to figure out what agencies, what time period, um, and then reach out to them and also just make the connection. So... Um, AHA really helped with that, and we um, reached, a, I think, a really good number of agencies over a short period of time, like six months. Um, and then I am still following up on those contacts now, um, traveling around the country, doing extensive oral histories with people, and then looking through their papers and the papers of their agency, and then any material culture that they have also produced um, and then, with their permission, bringing those back to the museum for study. Before beginning her research, Kathleen had an idea of what she might find. But once she began talking to people and agencies, it became apparent that there was a whole lot more to the story. I had read enough about um, Hispanic advertising to know that it grew out of, you know, really expanded in the 70s and 80s, especially after the 1980 census. Um, and I thought that most of the agencies that I would be dealing with or most of the individual careers of people that I would find would be in that post 1980s period. Um, before that period, and it seems obvious to me now, but it, it was a learning experience that we're in Latin America, Mexico, Puerto Rico, Cuba, and then migrated and really had transnational careers. So although they got their start somewhere else, they eventually came to the continental U.S. and opened agencies here. And I knew about the large Cuban diaspora that came to the U.S., um, but I didn't realize that I would be able to find um, some critical folks who had started their own agencies uh, in the U.S. and still had their papers, um, still had all the, the everything from the scrapbooks to the media that they had produced. 
The other really surprising thing to me is that um, many of the agencies have been family-owned um, and or woman-owned. And so the number or even percentage of Hispanic agencies that were women-owned is not surprising to the people in the industry, but it was sort of new information to me. And I think it's been really exciting and interesting to the researchers who've been starting to come and mine this collection. Okay, so we have an influx of transnational advertisers, women, and family-owned agencies. What's going on here? Yes, there has been robust advertising um, agencies and an industry in, uh, I would say, Mexico, in Latin America uh, to a certain extent, and then in, definitely in Cuba by the 50s and 60s, even slightly earlier, as American, large American ad agencies opened offices, you know, sort of around the world, but definitely in Cuba and in, um, in Mexico. So people are coming to those jobs and working there, and then eventually, you know, for whatever reason, um, in Cuba, it's certainly the revolution drives out a lot of folks, and they come to Miami, New Jersey, and New York, and they have these advertising careers and skills, and they um, open their own agencies. And there, this is in tandem with something else that's happening in the by the mid '60s, early '60s, which is the growth, establishment, and growth of Spanish language television in the U.S. And stations, of course, looking for revenue, uh, turn to a commercial model, um, and they need advertisers who not only speak Spanish but really understand the community um, and how to tap that community for you know advertising and for television. So. There are two things, well, there are multiple things going on at one time, but there's there's not just push factors of people out of Cuba, there are pull factors to the U.S. as well. That explains the rise in new agencies, but what about women? I mean, we've all seen Mad Men. Okay, hold on, let me stop you there. I have actually never seen Mad Men. What? In my life. Oh, okay, <laughs> all right, well, in that case, then I think it's safe for us for me to say... We've at least all heard of Mad Men. True. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, knowing that, all of this happened in a time when you really didn't see a lot of female leaders in advertising. So, what made Hispanic advertising different? You know, I think it's still, in popular culture, we we think it's all men. Um, and, you know, this really raises a bunch of other questions. And it raises questions for me, too, and I've asked some of the folks that we've interviewed really what made this different. Some of what made it different was that these are smaller agencies. Um, they're really working in a different language. Um, and so if you bring your skills, advertising skills plus the language skills, um, you can enter. Some of them are family-owned, um, and so they're partners, you know, husband-wife teams that start the agency. So Norma and Hector Orsi in L.A., um, they get their start uh, working for a larger American agency in Mexico City and then move to LA to open a branch of that and then spin off their own agency. So there are a number of ways in which um, women come in, but they also feel like they can start their own very niche agencies. Um, and I guess the climate in these cities like Miami or New York or New Jersey 
um, was just the right mix of things for them to be entrepreneurs and really make it work. For one good story on this, I mean, there are many, like like so many, <laughs> it's hard to choose. Um, but we have a picture on our website of Sarah Sunshine, who was um, a very early advertiser. She was a Cuban immigrant to the U.S. She comes to New York. Um, and we have a wonderful picture of her at a Cuban restaurant in New York with um, various players in the ad industry. Um, so she worked for Sam, which was Spanish um, Advertising and Marketing Services in New York. And she is sitting at the head of the table um, surrounded by men. It looks like Mad Men. <laughs> Um, and you never would have expected from necessarily watching that show that there would have been a Latina at the head of the table as basically the chief creative officer for um, an agency. Um, but there she is. And she really knew that what she was doing was significant, um, and she kept a lot of her work. She kept early marketing studies where she would sit in bodegas in New York and watch what people bought. Um, she kept her um, basically market research that went straight to Spanish language television um, to buy airtime. She kept print campaigns. She kept um, some of the things that she used as props on TV commercials. And one of her claims to fame was that um, the Palm Olive commercial with Madge, where, you know, she puts your hand, these are now old, but, you know, maybe on a throwback Tuesday you'll see them, um, <laughs> does your cuticle cream um, with the Palm Olive soap. She actually taught Madge Spanish so that they could do dual language advertising. And so there's an English version and then there's a Spanish version. So that's all sort of documented in her papers. And it's really a wonderful kind of archive of her, her work and her role in the larger industry. There would not just had a role in agencies, but they often ran them. They were chief creative officers before that was even a title. Um, so women in Hispanic advertising is really a theme that runs throughout our exhibition and throughout um, the archive that we're creating. And I think the materials that we've brought in from women-owned agencies or women's participation in agencies is really important. And that history will get written um, in a more nuanced and detailed way now that we have lots of stuff to provide scholars with. So we know that we saw a rise of Hispanic agencies that were family-owned, led by women, and staffed by people from around the world. But what were some of the challenges that they faced? There are a number of hurdles that Hispanic-owned agencies faced uh, in the past. The biggest one was budgets for clients. Um, they worked with smaller budgets than big agencies and Anglo or, you know, mass market-focused firms. So they had to do a lot with a little. The other thing they faced um, was convincing clients um, that their markets, the people that they spoke to, were consumers and had buying power. And that is a reoccurring story in every one of the oral histories that I've done um, and certainly threads through the archival materials as well. So a client... Um, you know, like American Airlines or Western Union uh, or whatever, 
just didn't really believe that um, Latinos in the U.S., whether they be Cuban diaspora or middle-class, you know, Mexican-Americans in L.A., had enough money to buy cars or buy plane tickets or couldn't imagine a use for Western Union, which is one of our best stories from a firm such as Bromley Aguilar in San Antonio. So they had a kind of uphill battle. Um, they create this industry by making sure that they've convinced clients um, that their, their customers, their communities um, actually buy. So Ernest Bromley, who was an early a uh, market researcher and just retired recently from the business uh, and got a Lifetime Achievement Award from AHA, he really was in there crunching the numbers on, you know, who's buying, what they're buying, what the p- market potential is in the 1980s, um, even before Nielsen has a rating for Spanish language television or anybody is getting marketable data. Um, and providing that to clients. And so he's, they, these firms really did a lot of work uh, because there was no Gallup, there was no Nielsen for this market. So that's a big hurdle. And for Western Union, one of the things that Cesar Bromley Aguilar convinced them, and it seems obvious in hindsight, is that You know, people who moved back and forth across borders and through countries um, were using Western Union to send money back home. So if you're coming to the U.S. and working, how do you send money back to your parents or to your grandparents? Um, And the same with American Airlines. People are, you know, not just taking cars across borders, but they're flying back across borders. So... Yes, that was, I think, one of the biggest hurdles that came up in our in our discussions um, was convincing clients of the, the buying power. So it sounds like what we're seeing isn't just the rise of Hispanic advertising in the 80s and 90s. A lot was going on before then, and Selena was the product of decades of hard work by a lot of different people. So if that's the case, what does the timeline for Hispanic advertising actually look like? I mean, and this is something, too, I'll refer uh, folks who are interested to our website, and there's a nice blog on this uh, for the National Museum of American History on the collecting and sort of a, a timeline. But there are three big waves, maybe now four, but there's the first wave, that 1960s, late, late 50s, 60s wave, um, of Cubans and Puerto Ricans into the U.S. and they start agencies. Um, and then the second wave is really that wave around the 1980 census. So that's in the Southwest. It's primarily Mexicans and Mexican Americans, and it stretches this border all the way to California. Um, and that's so that kind of the 1980 census which claims this kind of increasing browning of America or the growth of this demographic, although varied, of what at that point is called Hispanics or now we would call Latinos and Latinos, that's the second wave. And then the third wave is really a creative sort of revolution in Hispanic advertising. And I think that's represented, we collected from Tony Dieste in Dallas, um, 
and that kind of cracking the ceiling. Um, so he talked about when we collected from him, he was the first agency to win a CAN Lion. And traditionally, agencies on the Hispanic side had been underfunded, and so their budgets were smaller, and they couldn't do big production kind of advertising. But they break that creative ceiling anyway, and so there's this kind of taking off of um, that and the digital and all sorts of you know marketing efforts, uh, just to all the disciplines by the 90s and 2000s, sort of aha, where what the fourth wave is. I mean, there's the last time I went to one of their meetings, there was a lot of talk about total market, um, and then and disagreeing with that, that there really are still distinct markets that you need Hispanic advertisers or Latinx advertisers to really have that insider knowledge and to understand language and culture to be the most effective in terms of advertising. Okay, Leland, so here we are. What have we learned? So I think what we learned is that Hispanic advertising is something that's been on the rise for decades, not just two, but since the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And this rise is due to a lot of really hardworking men and women, people who were pioneers in a time when big brands didn't realize the power of Hispanic consumers and how important it was to have an expert there to guide you. Exactly. And, you know, that's what ultimately led to major crossover campaigns like Selena's and where we are today. Speaking of today, <laughs> that's the subject of our next episode, The Current State of Hispanic Advertising. Right. You know, guys, we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Like, we... Really, really (laughs) hope you enjoyed today's podcast, but we would love to hear your feedback. And if you really did like it, don't forget to subscribe. That way you'll hear our next episode right when it comes out. Yes, it will be out soon. Do not worry. Now, we want to take a quick moment to thank some very awesome people. Exactly. So first and foremost, we want to thank Kathleen Franz and the amazing folks at the Smithsonian. Without their expertise, our episode today would absolutely not have been possible. So make sure you check out their updated exhibit, which features many and more of the stories you heard today. You can also find additional info, links to the exhibit, and the blog on our page and in the episode description. I'm assuming you're looking at your phone right now. (laughs) We also want to thank Joaquim Karud, who was kind enough to give us permission to use his fantastic song, Lowrider, for our theme music. In addition, a big thanks to the amazing Noah Smith from Republic Editorial, for helping us to pull all this audio for this episode together. We could not have done it without him. No, you guys, Noah was a complete lifesaver. Lifesaver. <laughs> so speaking of lifesavers, last but not least, we want to thank our Ad2 family. So in case you guys didn't know, we're actually members of a young advertisers organization called Ad2. Um, if you found us online, you already know this is actually an Ad2 podcast. So big thanks to our Ad2 family, our AAF family, our amazing board, and all our members and potential members who are listening. Hashtag YAD2. <laughs> exactly. Talk to you guys later. Bye. Bye.